So here's where we are. We uh, have been going uh, chapter by chapter, section by section through Luke's gospel. Last week, we saw that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was basically last Sunday was Palm Sunday. And he goes into Jerusalem, uh, he weeps over Jerusalem, and then he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple of the money changers. That doesn't go over real well with the religious leaders who are in charge. And today, they challenge his authority. Who do you think you are to come into the temple and overturn the tables? So the issue in today's scripture is authority. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And then we're going to talk about um, spiritual authority, how to recognize it, how to exercise it in our own lives. All right, so here's the text. Can you see that in the back? I know it's a little bit hard. Okay. Um, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. So these, these are the bigwigs. Um, the Sanhedrin was pretty much the ruling group over all of Israel, was made up of, of priests, chief priests. Uh, priests. Um, scribes would be the experts in the law and the elders. So this is the authority. This, this, is, the, uh, this is the Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the President coming up to Jesus in the temple. And here's the question. They said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, you need to know that all of chapter 20 is a trap. They are trying. They, they aren't just, you know, casually saying, hey, Jesus, just question we thought up. Um, by what authority are you doing? No, this is a well-thought-through trap. You see, if he says, well, my authority is from God, or even I am God, you know what they're going to say? God has entrusted us. We've got the titles We don't recognize your authority, and he would, by their decree, lose credibility with the people. We don't authorize you, authoritize you, all right? So if he says, my authority is from God, they've got him there, right? On the other hand, if he doesn't defend his authority as as coming from God, they would say to the people, see, he himself doesn't even claim to be from God. So however he answers, this is called being caught on the horns of a dilemma. A question is put to you in a way that you can only answer yes or no, one way or the other, and either way you answer, you're wrong. All right. His credibility, his authority, ultimately his life is on the line here. Now, this word authority, interesting word, um, there's two words in Greek that are used to to, uh, that are translated into English with authority. One is exousia, 
which is this word. And, it, it, and it's the idea of what right do you have? It's, it's a, a, a cop with a badge. The badge gives him authority that other people don't have. What if, where, who gave you this authority, exousia? There's another word, dunamis, which is translated sometimes authority, other times power. All right? it, it, it means not just the right, but the might. Okay, So um, let's talk about, and I'm going to read the rest of the passage, but I, I'll, I'll explain it as we go. Let's talk about how these two words go together. Jesus authority, his exousia, his right from God was authenticated, demonstrated, validated by his dunamis, his power. Okay? So his power validates his authority from God. So let me give you an example of this. In Mark's gospel, Actually, in all the Gospels, but in Mark's Gospel, I'm going to read. Um, Jesus is teaching, and remember the, the ceiling? They, they hear noise, and, and all of a sudden, a paralyzed man is being let down through the roof in front of Jesus in a crowded house, probably Peter's house up in Capernaum. And um, everybody's waiting for Jesus to heal the man, and what comes out of Jesus' mouth? He says, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd, especially the Pharisees, say, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? First of all, they're disappointed that he didn't heal the man. Secondly, this guy's blasphemous. He's claiming that he can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? God? And Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, exousia, on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that I am God. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he heals the man. His authority is validated by his power. All right? Another example of that. The Apostle Paul plants the church in Corinth. He leaves and in come other teachers who start stabbing him in the back and talking behind his back, saying he's not really an apostle. We're the ones you should follow. And they were all about talk, talk, talk. They were talking Paul down, and they were talking themselves up, and the Corinthians were confused. So Paul writes in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, in dunamis. He's basically pulling the car over and says, don't make me come back there. Right? They're talking a good game, but I am the authorized apostle, and I have power. So, True spiritual authority is authenticated by spiritual power. Now, those who only have a title but don't have true power are usually very 
threatened by those who have both power and authority. So that's what's going on here. Who do you think you are turning over the tables in the temple and receiving all this praise? Who do you think you are? Is your authority your own or is it from God? Tell us. So here's how he responds. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, so that's really what they were asking Jesus. Are you claiming to be from God, from heaven? Or is this, are you just a man? Is this just man-made authority? He goes, well, let me ask you a question about John the Baptist. Now, um, some people read this and they go, well, that's kind of weird. Why, why does he point to John the Baptist? Well, it's, it's not as unrelated a question as, as it might seem. John was recognized by everyone as a prophet from God. In fact, look at in, in Matthew 3, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the people, the ordinary people, without the diplomas from the Sanhedrin, they knew John was an undisputed prophet from God. Now, why is that important? Because John, his whole mission was to point to Jesus and say he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Messiah. He's, John said, the one who comes after me is greater than me. I'm unworthy to untie his shoelace. So John and Jesus are a package deal. If you accept John, as all the people did, then you accept Jesus. If you reject Jesus, then you reject John. See, this wasn't just a random, hey, you answer my question before I answer your question, and you talk about llamas or something totally unrelated. This is, uh, is deeply related, their view of John. Now, what did they say? And they discussed it with one another. So, so, so they all come in mass to gang up on Jesus. And he goes, all right, let, let me ask you this. Uh, John's Baptist, was that from heaven, or was, that, was he just on his own? And they almost have to go, well, huddle, huddle, and they go over here, and they, they, you know, they're discussing, well, how are we going to answer this? Okay? We've got to do focus groups. We've got to figure out how to answer this properly. Right? Um, here's how they answer. If we say from heaven, if John is from heaven, he, Jesus, will say, why did you not believe him? I didn't see you guys getting baptized. You obviously rejected John. So if we say uh, John was sent from God, then they'll say, why didn't you follow him? But if we say from man, in other words, John's not sent from heaven, he's just an ordinary man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So now they're caught on the horns of a dilemma. John wasn't from God. They'll stone us. That's not going to be good. He was from God. Well, why didn't you follow the man he pointed to? Jesus. So they come back, and here's their answer. 
So they answered that they did not know where it came from, John's authority. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. His response does a number of things. First of all, it averts being arrested. Secondly, it defends his authority by being linked to John. And thirdly, it exposes their impotence. It shows that, that, that they're fools. That they can't even handle a simple discussion. All right? So while, while you read this, you could pass through it real quickly, but there's a lot going on here. And Jesus escapes. You know, he's got to stay alive long enough to get killed on Friday. And there are several traps in this, this passage where they're trying to trick him, they're trying to get him arrested, and, and he masterfully holds the press conference without getting tripped up. Okay? Now, um, so this passage raises the issue of spiritual authority. Who has it? How do you recognize it? How do you exercise it? So let me apply this. Um, true truths about true spiritual authority. All right, four, four things. One, first, first lesson we learn is this. True spiritual authority involves more than a title. The priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin and the scribes, they all had titles. But they had no authority, no true authority from God. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Right? So let me apply this uh, to the husbands in the room. Um, when our only authority in our marriage and in our family comes from quoting Ephesians 5.22... We're pulling a Barney Fife here. All right, so now, no doubt, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And um, some men, they've got that verse memorized. That's the only verse they've got memorized. But the Bible says, I'm the head, and you need to submit to my authority. Kids, wife, dog, dog, Ephesians 5.22. Right? I'm the head. I'm the God-ordained head. Right? Um, remember Andy and Barney? Right? So Andy Griffith was the sheriff in a little town called Mayberry. And he had a badge. He had authority, legitimate authority. But you know what else he had? Respect. Right? People from Mayberry respected him. And he knew when to use the badge and when to just use his southern charm and his capital, his respect. Barney, on the other hand, all he had was his badge. He didn't have real respect. Remember when he tried to write up uh, Gomer for jaywalking? And uh, Gomer turns around and calls, citizens arrest, and he arrests Barney, and oh, there's just, because it's all authority games going on with Barney. 
You know, Aunt B, I'm going to write you up on a 451. What's that? Crosswalking. You know, Opie, it's a 961 violation. What's that? Selling lemonade without a license. Right? He's all about the, the authority issue. Some, some men are, are always pulling 522s. Bible says, I'm the, I'm the authority. And it, it's true. The Bible does say that. But, but men... How we lead is with, not with just the title, but with verse 25. So you have the authority, and here's how you live it out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If all you have is the badge, but you don't love her and you don't love your kids. You're Barney, right? You see how authority and power go hand in hand. And this is, this is difficult for some people because the power here is the power to die. He gave himself up for her. That's how you demonstrate spiritual authority. All right, let me give you a second principle. Spiritual authority cannot be institutionalized. What do I mean by that? Well, Israel was the, God's true chosen people. They were his institution on the planet. But even an institution started by God and authorized by God can over time retain the form but lose the power. Right? In fact, Paul in 2 Timothy is talking about in the end times, people in the church will look like this. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There you have the concept of, of uh, going through the motions, doing the rituals, following the lit liturgy, being proud of our founder, but there's no power. There's no Holy Spirit empowerment. Now, I believe Jesus is saying, hey Israel, you've retained all the forms of religion. There's the temple and there's the priesthood and you're following the Sabbath and you've got all the ritual, you've got the holidays and you're just following all the forms but you're powerless. You know, back in Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision and in his vision, he sees the temple and he sees the glory of God over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And right before Israel goes into exile in Babylon, the glory of God rises above the Holy of Holies and rises above the temple and fades away into the east. 
The temple remained, but the glory and the power had left long before Jesus shows up. Now, just as Israel had the form but no power, can happen to the church, to entire denominations. And you know what? You know what? A, a sign of form without power is always pointing to the past. Always pointing to the past. Okay, so I was raised Roman Catholic, and the the sure sign that we were the Church of God is we can trace the Pope. The Pope before him tagged him, and the Pope before him tagged him. You can trace the Pope all the way back to Peter. It's called apostolic authority. We're the right church because we can trace our lineage all the way back to Peter. Now, what's interesting is I know people in the Greek Orthodox Church. You know what they do? They go, we got that beat. The Greek Church is actually older than the Roman Church. Paul planted the Corinthian Church before Rome got established. So we're the first church. Our authority is established by our history. Of course, the church gets really corrupt, and along comes Martin Luther. And he sets out to reform the church. He gets kicked out. And now, if you're Lutheran, you are confident that your authority can be traced back because your founder is Luther. Now, out of the Reformation also comes Calvin, who was a much better systematician than Luther, and the Presbyterians trace their lineage back to Calvin, therefore we're the right church. Okay? The Methodists trace their founding back to John Wesley. So, so who's, who's right? Whose history proves that they're right? Wrong question. A church's faithfulness, not to apostolic succession, but to apostolic teaching, ties you to the apostles. And true spiritual authority comes not just from your history, but from the Holy Spirit being in the people. Right? So there's a place to study church history and to learn a lot of things. But if you're basing the authority of any institution on its history or its founder, it didn't really work with Israel now, did it? Okay. Let me give you a... So, so, so the first point is a title doesn't necessarily mean you have true spiritual authority. Secondly... True authority can't be institutionalized, and the more you're pointing to the past, the more you're probably trying to justify a lack of power. Okay? Number three, a transformed life gives evangelism spiritual authority. Okay? Now, when I say true spiritual authority... I don't necessarily mean going around doing miracles. Now, there's that movement today. We're truly from God because of all the miracles we do, and the emphasis is always on 
the next miracle and the next miracle. See, we have true spiritual power. The spiritual power I'm talking about here is the spiritual power of a transformed life. You know, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Miracles may or may not validate that a person is even saved. But you know what you can't fake? Through the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is power that can't be explained. Especially if they knew you before. Well, that guy in high school was a completely different person than he is now. What happened? Holy Spirit saved him. Now, there are two verses that are always pointed to justifying that we should do apologetics and defend the faith. Okay? Um, well, do I have? Oh, here they are. Look. First Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, an apology to anyone who asks you. Okay, so here, here we dwell on this word. You need to learn apologetics to argue well that Christianity is true. And here are the different arguments and here are the different defenses. And that, that's, that's legit. That's legit. But don't miss, don't miss this part. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know what he's assuming? People are going to come up to you at work and in your family and in your neighborhood and they're going to go, you're so different. I see that you have a, a hope. I mean, the world's going crazy with the COVID and the economy and the politics and, blah, 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 and you just seem to have a, a joy and a hope and a confidence that's above it all. Where do you get that? And how do you, oh, it's the Jesus thing? Well, wasn't that disproven a long time ago? No, let me tell you about it. But notice, the transformed life goes hand in hand with the ability to make a defense. And then, do it, the defense, with gentleness and respect. We don't get our methodology from political talk shows. The back and forth, the anger, the, the ad hominem, the, 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 the gentleness and respect. Same is true, Peter says, or, or uh, Peter says this, Paul says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to uh, how how you ought to answer each person. Again, in an apologetics verse, you're answering. But gracious is the key. You go, okay, I need to, I need to add that to my apologetics method. How do, I, how do I add graciousness? You don't add it. You are it. Well, how? By being supernaturally transformed. And, and you know what? Some people may say, I'm so far away from that, maybe I'm not saved. 
fall on your face and say, Jesus, save me. Or, I'm so influenced by the world that none of this is happening. Fall on your face and ask God to transform you. Right? Are you getting the tap on the shoulder? What's your secret? Let me give you an example of this. I love this, this story. Um, I'm going to read it. A few years ago, a group of salesmen went to a regional sales convention in Chicago. The convention lasted all week, and all the salesmen had assured their wives that they would be home in plenty of time for Friday night's dinner. As they hurried through the airport to catch their flight, they rushed down the airport's corridor with their briefcases in hand. In the rush, one of the salesmen inadvertently knocked over a table which held a display of apples. Apples flew everywhere. Without stopping or looking back, they all continued running so they would make their plane, all but one. He stopped after running a few more yards, took a deep breath, and experienced a twinge of compassion for the girl whose apple stand had been overturned. He told his buddies to go on without him, waved goodbye, told one of them to call his wife when they arrived at, at their home and explain he was taking a later flight. Then he returned to the terminal where the apples were all over the terminal floor. He was glad he did. The 16-year-old girl running the apple cart was totally blind. She was softly crying, tears running down her cheeks in frustration. And at the same time, helplessly groping for her spilled apples as the crowd swirled about her, no one stopping, no one caring for her plight. The salesman knelt on the floor with her, gathered up the apples, put them back on the table, and helped organize her display. As he did this, he noticed that many of the apples had been battered and bruised. These he set aside in another basket. When he finished, he pulled out his wallet and said to the girl, Here, please take this $40 for the damage we did. Are you okay? She nodded through her tears. He continued on with, I hope we didn't spoil your day too badly. As the salesman started to walk away, the bewildered blind girl called to him, Mister, as he paused and turned to look back into her blind eyes, she continued, are you Jesus? His life. Not just his words, but his life witnessed to the reality of Jesus. Now don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm not saying forget the gospel and just live it and people will magically become Christians. No, we need to give a verbal explanation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But our lives are also the power of God that give a testimony to his reality. All right, now, one last thing. Because I think some of you may, some of you may be like all guilt-ridden. Oh, I haven't had anybody tap me on the shoulder and say, what's the secret of your hope? Tell me about Jesus. Yeah, it hasn't happened in ever, right? And um, I, I, others may say, okay, I'm going to get really serious about this. And then I'll have such spiritual authority that I'll be like a machine gun Jesus preacher and everybody will get saved. Last point. Even Jesus' perfect authority was rejected. Okay? We need to realize that just because we may have spiritual authority 
backed by real spirit-infused power, people still aren't going to buy it. Later, the week, later in this week, Jesus was hanging on a cross. So, so let me close by reading interesting passage in Revelation 12 about the spiritual reality that's going on all around us. Right? And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, um, when did this happen? Some, some say, well, this is talking about the, the original fall of Satan before creation or during creation. Okay. Others would say, no, this is yet to happen in the end times. I, I think this is referring to what happened when Jesus died and rose from the dead. That is when Satan was defeated and thrown down. So we go on. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the, oop, there's, look at these two words together. There's power and authority of Christ have overcome. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan hates you and he, he hates God. But he knows God is just, so he loves to bring your case before God and accuse you. They're sinners. They are far from loyal to you. They did this, this. They violated your law. That's what Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren. And, okay, so he, he accuses day and night. And they, this is you and me, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, if you stopped right there, you would go, yep, just remind Satan of the blood of Jesus that covers you and your life is a testimony and you, you, you're, you, you bear testimony or witness to Jesus and you will be victorious. And that's what they would preach in some churches. Victory all the time. But look at the last phrase of the sentence. For they loved their lives even unto death. Part of your testimony is being willing to die. That's victory. They stayed faithful even though slandered and accused and persecuted and martyred. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And then look at, look at the summary. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You, you would think the reasoning would be 
Satan's been defeated. He's been thrown down, so he's given up. But since when has Satan ever been rational? You know, you ever notice when fights break out in a football game? Isn't it in the fourth quarter when the one team knows that they can't win, they've lost, and they're just irrational, and they start playing dirty, and fights break out out of just frustration? Satan's been defeated. He's been thrown down to the earth. And the point is, he's wrathful. He is He is furious, and we are the recipients of that. I I think, especially in days to come, we need to be prepared for persecution. If your mindset is, I am a true child of God, I have spiritual authority, I have power, everybody will love me, And when it doesn't happen, you fall apart. Realize it doesn't work that way. Now, you still walk through the world confident that God's going to use you to reach some people. But when the attacks come and the persecution comes and the hardship comes, don't give up. That's your time to really shine and let his authority speak. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, you are King of kings, Lord of lords. You didn't have the Sanhedrin-approved title. They did, but they had no power. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the lion. Every knee will bow before you. And Lord, you tell us that we're to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. And you go with us. And all authority has been given to you and you delegate that authority to us. So we can go with confidence. And Lord, we know we will face opposition, accusation, slander. May that not stop us. Lord, wake us up if we are relying on forms, but no power. Wake us up if we're relying on titles and positions, but aren't truly glorifying you by living out the fruit of the Spirit. So Lord, we surrender our souls once again before your throne. We ask for your forgiveness for where we fail and fall short. We ask for your filling so we can walk out refreshed, a new day, uh, ready to serve you, show the world the power and the authority that comes from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.